Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Article 2 of the Constitution vests the executive power in the President of the United States. But what is the executive power exactly? In late 18th century America, when the Constitution was being drafted and ratified, it meant both the power to execute or enforce the laws made by the legislature, and also the power to represent the country as a whole to other sovereign countries in making war, contracting peace, establishing alliances, or engaging in diplomacy. In domestic affairs, the president executes the law, and the law finds its authority ultimately in a statute passed by Congress, even if Congress has delegated that authority to executive branch agencies or departments. But in foreign affairs, the president's much less bounded by statutes or congressional authorization, and the complex arena of foreign affairs requires prudence and judgment in the executive. But sometimes this precise line between domestic and foreign affairs isn't so easy to draw. Keep in mind as well that although the Constitution separates the legislative and executive powers from each other and vests them in different departments, in certain places it gives the legislature a limited role in the exercise of executive power, and the executive a limited role in the exercise of legislative power. The president may sign or veto a law, for example. If you keep reading in Article 2, you'll see some examples of limited legislative involvement in foreign policy. The president has the power to make treaties but this requires the advice and consent of the Senate. Same with the power to appoint ambassadors, who act as representatives of the United States to other countries. Their appointment requires the advice and consent of the Senate. But these are exceptions that prove the rule that the president bears primary responsibility for U.S. foreign policy in the relationships, alliances, and conflicts with foreign nations. There are a lot of constitutional questions that come up involving the president's authority to act in foreign affairs, and the controversies in these cases often point to another more fundamental question. What powers the government are inherently executive, such that they're vested by Article II in the president of the United States? We'll explore this question today with two cases from Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, United States versus Curtis Wright Export Corporation in 1936, and Korematsu versus United States in 1944. Let's start with Curtis Wright and what that case says about the president's authority in foreign affairs. Some background for that case. In the 1930s, Bolivia and Paraguay were involved in a violent border dispute. And on May 28, 1934, Congress passed a joint resolution authorizing the president to enforce an arms embargo against those countries if he thought it was necessary to promote peace in the region. Then on the same day as that congressional resolution, President Roosevelt issued Proclamation 2087, And that proclamation imposed an arms embargo on Bolivia and Paraguay, meaning that American citizens and American companies were forbidden from selling arms and munitions to those countries. The Curtis Wright Export Corporation violated the embargo by selling machine guns to Bolivia. The company argued that both the congressional resolution and President Roosevelt's proclamation were unconstitutional because they represented the delegation of legislative power to the executive. And so one of the core questions of the case is whether the power to impose an embargo to make commerce and the weapons of war with a specific country illegal is at root a legislative power, one to be exercised by Congress alone and not delegated to the executive. With only one dissenting opinion, the Supreme Court sided with the government and against Curtis Wright. 
This is the same court that struck down parts of the National Industrial Recovery Act for its delegation of legislative power to the president in Schechter Poultry, a case we already discussed. So it's an era in which the court took seriously the non-delegation doctrine. In Schechter Poultry, Congress delegated power to the president, and the president made a certain kind of commerce illegal. The court said, no, you can't do that. But here, Congress delegated power to the president, and the president made a certain kind of commerce illegal. And the court said, yeah, that's within the powers of the president. The court took no constitutional issue with the president's proclamation in the Curtis Wright case, and it's because they didn't think it involved the delegation of legislative power at all. Instead, the court saw the power to impose the embargo as executive in nature, vested by the Constitution in the president. And one key distinction here is the president's authority in domestic affairs on the one hand and the president's authority in foreign affairs on the other. In an important section of his opinion for the court, Justice George Sutherland laid out a constitutional theory of executive power along these lines that's worth quoting at length. As he writes, these two classes of powers, one over domestic and one over foreign affairs, are different in respect of their origin and their nature. The broad statement that the federal government can exercise no powers except those specifically enumerated in the Constitution, and such implied powers as are necessary and proper to carry into effect the enumerated powers, is categorically true only in respect of our internal affairs. In that field, the primary purpose of the Constitution was to carve from the general mass of legislative powers then possessed by the states such portions as it was thought desirable to vest in the federal government leaving those not included in the enumeration still in the states. That this doctrine applies only to the powers the states had is self-evident, and since the states generally never possessed international powers, such powers could not have been carved from the mass of state powers, but obviously were transmitted to the United States from some other source. During the colonial period, those powers were possessed exclusively by and were entirely under the control of the crown, By the Declaration of Independence, the representatives of the United States declared the united, not the several, colonies to be free and independent states, and as such to have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. As a result of the separation from Great Britain by the colonies acting as a unit, the powers of external sovereignty passed from the crown, not to the colonies severally, but to the colonies in their collective and corporate capacity as the United States of America. Even before the Declaration, the colonies were a unit in foreign affairs acting through a common agency, namely the Continental Congress, composed of delegates from the 13 colonies. That agency exercised the powers of war and peace, raised an army, created a navy, and finally adopted the Declaration of Independence. Rulers come and go, governments end and governments change, but sovereignty survives. A political society cannot endure without a supreme will somewhere. Sovereignty is never held in suspense. When, therefore, the external sovereignty of Great Britain in respect of the colonies ceased, it immediately passed to the Union. The Union existed before the Constitution, which was ordained and established, among other things, to form a more perfect Union. Prior to that event, it's clear that the Union, declared by the Articles of Confederation to be perpetual, was the sole possessor of external sovereignty. And in the Union it remained without change, save insofar as the Constitution in express terms qualified its exercise. The Framers' Convention was called and exerted its powers upon the irrefutable postulate that though the states were several, their people in respect of foreign affairs were one. In that convention, the entire absence of state power to deal with those affairs was thus forcefully stated by Rufus King, who was one of the delegates from Massachusetts, and Sutherland is quoting him that the states were not sovereigns in the sense contended for by some, 
They did not possess the peculiar features of sovereignty. They could not make war, nor peace, nor alliances, nor treaties. Considering them as political beings, they were dumb, for they could not speak to any foreign sovereign whatever. They were deaf, for they could not hear any propositions from such sovereign. They had not even the organs or faculties of defense or offense, for they could not of themselves raise troops or equip vessels for war. Sutherland then concludes that it results that the investment of the federal government with the powers of external sovereignty did not depend upon the affirmative grants of the Constitution. The powers to declare and wage war, to conclude peace, to make treaties, to maintain diplomatic relations with other sovereignties, if they had never been mentioned in the Constitution, would have vested in the federal government as necessary concomitants of nationality. Neither the Constitution nor the laws passed in pursuance of it have any force in foreign territory unless in respect of our own citizens. And operations of the nation in such territory must be governed by treaties, international understandings and compacts, and the principles of international law. As a member of the family of nations, the right and power of the United States in that field are equal to the right and power of the other members of the international family. The power to acquire territory by discovery and occupation, the power to expel undesirable aliens the power to make such international agreements as do not constitute treaties in the constitutional sense, none of which is expressly affirmed by the Constitution, nevertheless exist as inherently inseparable from the conception of nationality. Not only, as we have shown, is the federal power over external affairs in original and essential character different from that over internal affairs, but participation in the exercise of the power is significantly limited. In this vast external realm, with its important, complicated, delicate, and manifold problems, the president alone has the power to speak or listen as a representative of the nation. He makes treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate, but he alone negotiates. Into the field of negotiation, the Senate cannot intrude, and Congress itself is powerless to invade. As the future Chief Justice John Marshall said in his great argument of March 7, 1800 in the House of Representatives, The president is the sole organ of the nation in its external relations and its sole representative with foreign nations. And Sutherland continued, It's important to bear in mind that we are dealing not alone with an authority vested in the president by an exertion of legislative power, but with such an authority plus the very delicate, plenary, and exclusive power of the president as the sole organ of the federal government in the field of international relations a power which does not require as a basis for its exercise an act of Congress, but which, of course, like every governmental power, must be exercised in subordination to the applicable provisions of the Constitution. According to Sutherland, the president's authority in foreign affairs is very different than the president's authority in domestic affairs. It's nice that the president had authorization here from Congress, but the president didn't need it. And this distinction between the president's role in domestic and foreign affairs makes sense of the difference in vesting clauses in Article I and Article II. Article 1 vests all legislative powers herein granted in the legislature, in Congress, whereas Article 2 vests the executive power, the whole of it, presumably, in the president. Now, the upshot for the case is that the Curtis Wright Corporation was liable for a fine of up to $10,000, and individuals could be given prison terms. But the upshot for the Constitution was an underscoring of this crucial distinction between the limited enumerated powers of the legislature and the president's role in faithfully executing those laws domestically and then the largely unenumerated plenary authority of the president in foreign affairs as the embodiment of the sovereignty of the United States in international relations. The case of Korematsu versus United States in 1944 puts this distinction between foreign and domestic affairs to the test. The case involves Executive Order 9066, which President Roosevelt issued in 1942. 
The order authorized the Secretary of War to issue exclusion orders, telling anyone they had to leave certain designated areas of the United States and then to provide food, shelter, and accommodations as necessary for people so excluded. Under that order, the U.S. government pursued a policy of excluding Americans of Japanese ancestry from huge areas on the West Coast and then relocating them to internment camps for years at a time. No formal charges were required to relocate a citizen, and there was no requirement that the government provide evidence of disloyal behavior. Fred Korematsu was one of the Japanese Americans interned under this order, and he protested, and his case made it to the Supreme Court, 1944. The Supreme Court upheld the order in Korematsu's internment in a decision that had a fairly straightforward logic. Extreme measures are justified in war that would not be justified in peacetime. As the majority opinion said, quote, compulsory exclusion of large groups of citizens from their homes, except under circumstances of direst emergency and peril, is inconsistent with our own basic governing institutions. But when under conditions of modern warfare our shores are threatened by hostile forces, the power to protect must be commensurate with the threatened danger. The four dissenting justices in this case dissented from just this point, that the actions of the government were actually commensurate with the danger. But they saw this particular exercise of the power to wage war, this one a war declared by Congress, as unjustified by the circumstances. The dissent that appeals most to modern ears is that of Justice Murphy, who wrote that the policy of exclusion by military order, quote, goes over the very brink of constitutional power and falls into the ugly abyss of racism. But in this case, the powers of war and peace, of foreign affairs, were not so easily disentangled from domestic policy. And the limitations on government power outlined in the Constitution, including its rights provisions, were not so easily disentangled from foreign affairs. Between 1942 and 1946, some 120,000 Japanese Americans were interned under President Roosevelt's executive order. In 1988, President Reagan then signed a law that gave $20,000 to each of the 60,000 survivors of the camps then still alive. President Reagan's remarks at the signing ceremony are worth revisiting. They're good. The clip here lasts about six minutes. Members of Congress and distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong. More than 40 years ago, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the United States were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in makeshift internment camps. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race, for these 120,000 were Americans of Japanese descent. Yes, the nation was then at war, struggling for its survival, and it's not for us today to pass judgment upon those who may have made mistakes while engaged in that great struggle. Yet we must recognize that the internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. For throughout the war, Japanese Americans in the tens of thousands remained utterly loyal to the United States. Indeed, scores of Japanese Americans volunteered for our armed forces, many stepping forward in the internment camps themselves. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team, made up entirely of Japanese Americans, served with immense distinction to defend this nation, their nation. Yet back at home, the soldiers' families were being denied the very freedom for which so many of the soldiers themselves were laying down their lives. Congressman Norman Mineta, with us today, was 10 years old when his family was interned. In the congressman's words, my own family was sent first to Santa Anita Racetrack. We showered in the horse paddocks 
Some families lived in converted stables, others in hastily thrown together barracks. We were then moved to Heart Mountain, Wyoming, where our entire family lived in one small room of a rude tar paper barrack. Like so many tens of thousands of others, the members of the Mineta family lived in those conditions, not for a matter of weeks or months, but for three long years. The legislation that I am about to sign provides for a restitution payment to each of the 60,000 survivors, Japanese surviving Japanese Americans of the 120,000 who were relocated or detained. Yet no payment can make up for those lost years. So what is most important in this bill has less to do with property than with honor. For here, we admit a wrong. Here, we reaffirm our commitment as a nation to equal justice under the law. I'd like to note that the bill I'm about to sign also provides funds for members of the Aleut community who were evacuated from the Aleutian and Pribilof Islands after a Japanese attack in 1942. This action was taken for the Aleut's own protection, but property was lost or damaged that has never been replaced. And now in closing, I wonder whether you'd permit me one personal reminiscence one prompted by an old newspaper report sent to me by Rose Ochi, a former attorney. The clipping comes from the Pacific Citizen and is dated December 1945. Arriving by plane from Washington, the article begins, General Joseph W. Stilwell pinned the Distinguished Service Cross on Mary Masuda in a simple ceremony on the porch of her small frame shack near Talbert, Orange County. She was one of the first Americans of Japanese ancestry to return from relocation centers to California's farmlands. Vinegar Joe Stilwell was there that day to honor Kazuo Masuda, Mary's brother. You see, while Mary and her parents were in an internment camp, Kazuo served as staff sergeant to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. In one action, Kazuo ordered his men back and advanced through heavy fire, hauling a mortar. For 12 hours, he engaged in a single-handed barrage of Nazi positions. Several weeks later, at Casino, Kazuo staged another lone advance. This time, it cost him his life. The newspaper clipping notes that her two surviving brothers were with Mary and her parents on the little porch that morning. These two brothers, like the heroic Kazuo, had served in the United States Army. After General Stilwell made the award, the motion picture actress Louise Albritton, a Texas girl, told how a Texas battalion had been saved by the 442nd. Other show business personalities paid tribute. Robert Young, Will Rogers Jr., and one young actor said, Blood that has soaked into the sands of a beach is all of one color. America stands unique in the world, the only country not founded on race, but on a way, on an ideal. Not in spite of, but because of our polyglot background, we have had all the strength in the world. That is the American way. The name of that young, I hope I pronounced this right, was Ronald Reagan. Yes, the ideal of liberty and justice for all, that is still 
the American way. Thank you and God bless you. And now let me sign H.R. 442, so fittingly named in honor of the 442nd. Reagan's comments were meant to mark the occasion, but the occasion, the detainment of American citizens on American soil in wartime simply by an executive order of the president, raises questions about the constitutional authority of the president in foreign affairs and what weight we should give the distinction between the president's authority in foreign and domestic affairs. And this distinction could cut both ways. On the one hand, the homeland might become part of the battlefield, a theater of war, as parts of the West Coast were treated in World War II. On the other hand, we might push in the other direction and ask what limitations the president faces in foreign affairs on foreign shores. What limitations are there to the exercise of executive power in those circumstances? We'll pick up a small part of that question in the next episode with a discussion of the detention without charges of individuals captured in connection with the ongoing war on terror.